Hello, everyone. I'm Holden Sherman from Miles of Sports Podcast. Today on Mile 42, I have a recording of a podcast me and Quinn Corpule made today. Quinn is a frequent guest of my show, and also he just created his own podcast, the Mecca Sports Podcast, which you should go check out when you have a chance. Today, we discuss the NBA Finals, Steph Curry's legacy after he won his first career Finals MVP, and we do a little bit of NBA draft analysis going into the draft next Thursday. I hope you guys enjoy. All right, Holden Sherman is here from the Miles of Sports Podcast. You know him. He's been on, I think, a couple of times already. Uh, this show, by the way, will be on both the Mech Sports Podcast and the Miles of Sports Podcast feeds. So you can check out both of those feeds for this episode. But uh, Holden, we graduated high school this year. And we graduated elementary school seven years ago in June of 2015. Um, not a lot. A lot has changed. I will say a lot in the world has changed, not just in sports, but uh, just the world in general. But one of the few things that are the same from June 2015 and June 2022 is that the Golden State Warriors are NBA champions. That is four in eight years. Steph gets his first finals MVP. Um, We should probably start with him because you, a Steph Curry fan who is currently sporting a Steph Curry jersey, uh, you probably have a lot to say about him. Uh, Holden, what has been going through your mind regarding Stephen Curry over these last 12-ish hours? So if anyone ever sees my Twitter and I ever get popular when it comes to the broadcasting world, they're going to see how much I love Steph because, you know, I started this idea of, you know, maybe I'm just going to go on Twitter and just, like, talk about sports and, you know, no one will see it now, but someone will meme me for my takes, hopefully, if I ever get famous. And it's just all love for Steph. Something that I love about Curry, and don't worry, I'll answer this. I, I kind of need the floor for this one. But uh, something I love about Steph is relatability. Everyone said he couldn't do it. Everyone said he was too short. He didn't go the convent- conventional path. He didn't go to uh, a blue blood school. He went to Davidson, who's, by the way, head coach retired today, but I digress. He went to Davidson. Davidson. He led them to the Final Four, which was very historic. Then he got into the league. He had ankle injuries, and then he persevered. He's also very selfless. That's why Kevin Durant came and played with them. That's why this Warriors team is always able to contend. That's why he understands that Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody and James Wiseman need to be on the team because it will extend the team's um, championship window. And that's what I love about Curry, his self-awareness. Yesterday, he was at the podium in the press conference. The first question was, how's it feel to win finals MVP? And he was like, fuck it. I don't give a shit about that. We just won the finals. It's always about we over me to Steph, and I just love that about him. And for something that I've kind of phrased over the last seven years is my justice for Steph campaign finally finished yesterday. I was fucking pissed in 2015 when Andre Iguodala got finals MVP because one, it made no sense. LeBron James literally was spectacular. So it was insulting to LeBron and also Curry because Iguodala did not shut down LeBron. So the narrative just sounded right. And, you know, when you look at the record books, Steph Curry is known as one of the two small guards to really lead teams to finals. Magic Johnson was 6'9". He's not a small guard but Isaiah Thomas and Steph Curry. And that wasn't really reflected in the record books until yesterday. Obviously, I didn't really care about that because I love Steph Curry. And for me, I can see beyond awards. But when you look at the record book, something doesn't make sense and something doesn't show Curry's uh, dominance throughout this time. So now he has that finals MVP to really show people, like, to to shut them up. Like, I thought it was absolute bullshit. 
going into this finals when people were criticizing for how he played versus the Raptors, even though he led that series in scoring. And everyone thought Kawhi Leonard was spectacular, but Curry scored more points. In 2016, he almost averaged a triple-double. 2017, um, 2017, by the way, when I say six, when I'm saying a year, I'm saying 16, 17, and also now 17, 18, when he was with KD, he was phenomenal except for game three. And in 2015, 16, when he played LeBron, he had the most three-pointers ever in a finals, even though he lost, and that was the worst series. So I'm just kind of happy to see that is reflected, and I'm so excited for the Steph Curry love that's going to come his way. Now, as much as I love Steph, though, I don't want to hear people say he's better than Magic because it's just not, like, not yet. Let's all calm down. Magic Johnson went to nine finals. Curry's been to six. Now, could Curry catch him? Maybe, but he's just going to need a lot. But right now, I'm super happy and finally to, happy to see that Curry has that hardware showing that he's a finals MVP and that he is a really, truly clutch player. Closeout game, 34, 7, 7, yep. 6 of 11 from 3. Um, we can get to the all-time ranking stuff in a bit because apparently people care about that. But right now, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just think we should take a moment or a few moments to just appreciate Steph and yeah. be very thankful that we get to bear witness to him single-handedly deflate a crowd especially a crowd like Boston, like you could tell last night, if you were watching that they wanted to explode, like they, they were, they were waiting for her cooking skills. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I know, I know you're serious. I heard, I heard. Yeah. Um, so, but they, they wanted to get into the game so bad and Celtics after their, what was it? 14 to two start. Yeah. They, they couldn't get a run going. And um, Steph, he, he just, ah, oh my God, I love how he strikes fear into hearts of all of those that are against him he did it again and I was thinking about after last night about how many truly dominant point guards there have been throughout NBA history I mean you think of dominant NBA forces um like they're mostly forwards and centers like guys who can take over physically you think of LeBron yeah. you think of Shaq you think of MJ you think of Wilt, uh, I think of Bill Russell. Uh, the only truly like dominant point guards in league history, like guys who could single handedly control games, Steph, no particular order, Steph, Magic, Iverson, Isaiah Thomas. If you want to throw Steve Nash in there, I would no, not. No, no, you don't think so. What about Oscar? Oscar over Iverson. Well, I was getting to Oscar. Yeah, but it was crazy. I, the, hold on. I said no particular order. Jesus. Oh, my bad. Yeah, I have bad. to establish my these bad. things. Yeah, that's okay. why I establish okay. these things. Don't you my worry. Bad. That's if you want to throw Steve Nash in there, sure. And then, yeah, if you want to throw Oscar in there, sure. But that's that's it. Like, there's not many throughout NBA history. Um, and I don't know. I just think whenever something as rare as that comes around, I think there just comes a point where we can forget about where someone ranks amongst all-time guys and simply just appreciate what we're watching, especially, I mean, I guess I don't have a dog in this race. I'm not biased towards Golden State or Boston, but for a guy that's been doing it since we were literally in elementary school, like we've had the pleasure of watching this guy for seven years, like be at the peak of his powers. And I just think at some point we just have to stop and put all ranking discourse and discussion aside. Now I know that's not going to happen because that's not the world we live in, but um, Stephen Curry, uh, he's just so unbelievably fun to watch. 
Totally. And I forget who it was in this last seven or eight days or whatever. But someone said that Steph's best attribute, attribute is not his shooting and it's his will to win. I totally agree. And I think that's so underrated. One, he's always been a good rebounder. And, you know, maybe he the ball falls to him more or whatever. But, you know, being a good rebounder means that you're in the right place at the right time. And then he sets that tone for the whole team. Gary Payton's always in the right place at the right time. Andrew Wiggins is always in the right place at the right time. Kevon Looney is. Draymond's always making good decisions. And his leadership kind of trickles down on the team. I also think that when we look at the record books as well, we always talk about players' most iconic finals games. So if you look at LeBron, we can say a million. But for the sake of this, I'm just going to say games five through seven in 2016 versus Steph. If you look at KD, it's probably a game three, either in 17 or 18. If you look at Giannis, it's definitely game six last year. Jordan, on and on and on. Steph finally had that game where you're like, this was revolutionary. That game four, second half, he put his team on his back saying, fuck it. We don't have it right now, but I do, and I'm going to take them to the promised land. And when he made that three in Derek White's face to put them up six with less than two minutes remaining, it, it was over for Boston to me in that series. That that really solved everything there. Yeah, yeah. all like um, last night took 11 threes. All of them felt like they were going in. Yes, yes. And there is like you have a lot of guys in the league who – if they get a wide open three or just a semi open three, you're pretty confident it's going to go in. Like, I think even though Evan Fournier has had his terrible, like his fair share of terrible games, if he gets a wide open three, I'm pretty confident it's going in. But yeah. Steph Curry is on another level with that. Like, you are surprised when he messes up. And that, when they, when players reach that threshold, they are literally on like a mountain of their own with literally like the greatest of in any sport really you are, when you are, when you are surprised when someone messes up that's a, that they're they're truly on a different level all right let's praise Steph for specific things he did in this series i guess more so in game 6 cuz it was very noticeable um the shooting was obvious as i just said all 11 threes felt like they were going in um i think something that's going to get overshadowed by everything else if not for us uh his defense yeah, his defense was spectacular. Like he got Al Horford in the post and walled him up. He forced Al Horford to pass, and I think I said this either with Will on my last pod or with you. But this is the strongest I have ever seen Steph physically yeah. in terms of strength. Like he has been able to stop drivers, like something that he could not do in 2016, even though he was a unanimous MVP, and. In 2015 or 2016, even 2017, if you called Steph a two-way player, people would have said that's false. But I think that is very commendable that he has added that element to his game, and it showed out in the biggest moments. Totally. I I had a lot of rage tweets um, about the series saying, why the fuck do the Celtics keep going back to whoever on Curry offense? I don't care about the stats because there's a point after game three where they looked a little good. Curry competes on that side of the ball, and you have to give it – I think, you know, with a lot of players, you saw a big improvement from the players who did not play in the bubble from parts of their game. Steph didn't play basketball for nine months straight, and he'd only played one game before COVID shut uh, shut down because of his wrist injury. Steph really lasered in on his strength, and he was talking about yesterday that he started this new routine going in for this season, 365 days and six and six days, uh, a year and six days after, uh, before the finals uh, game six 
And, you know, you could really tell he lasered in on it. He's talked about in interviews how he still feels like he's in his prime and stuff like that. And you can see that. One, because his game is going to allow it for him. He's not relying on um, hefty athleticism or, you know, like injuries or, or like doing crazy things with your body. And because of the awareness he has, it makes Al Horford not feel as confident backing him down in the post. I, w- I didn't understand why they kept going to those mismatches. And also because of how aware of the defender he is, that's where those rebounds come in. And that's, that's where those steals come in. I just, and you know, uh, Mike Brown does a really good job with rotations and, you know, you can really see that in Steph. He's, he's truly a team defender. I think if you, we had the 2016 finals again, Kyrie Irving would not just dominate Curry like he did because of Curry's lack of defense defense. He's, he's just very strong and you, you can really see that. Yeah. And going like staying with his strength, his ability to get in the lane, like essentially almost whenever he wanted, like, yeah. especially against the non Robert Williams lineups when Boston didn't have a true rim protector on the floor, Steph, he was first of all, like his handle, well, probably like fourth or fifth of all, um, Steph's handle is the tightest I've seen it. Like, he's yeah. had, obviously, moments in the past, you know, the moment against the Clippers where he dribbles through three guys, yeah. hits a follow-away three. Also There's the that. Ball. There's the Chris Paul one where he does the double behind the back on the baseline. But at the same time, especially when Boston was trying to trap him up top, like, the amount of, like, not only, I wouldn't call them meaningful dribbles, but dribbles that I don't think a lot of other players could make, like, he would – just stick with, he kept sticking with it, even if the ball was like very, very low to the floor. Yeah. And then he was able to power through guys and get into the lane. Like how many point guards in NBA history are able to get most anything they want at the basket. Now I haven't gone through the archives, but it's probably not many, especially for ones at step stature. Yeah. And to add to it, kind of like the quick adjustment. So there was possession, I think, in game four where Curry was switched on to Al Horford. And I said to myself, well, this is an easy basket. And Curry he kind of forced up a jumper, I'm pretty sure. And then yesterday in the fourth quarter, he has Al Horford switched on to him again. And instead of just being lured into the jump shot, he comes, he beats him, and he gets a nice left-handed layup. Curry's awareness also as a driver is, is very, very important. And that's why he, to me at least, he hit that that 6-3. He missed his, I think, his uh, – he missed four straight threes or three straight threes. And he started to drive to the basket after he had 21 points and he hit those three threes in the third quarter. And, you know, he started to drive to the basket and open up his opportunity to get that, that final three pointer before his last three pointer of the game. So I think he also is not somebody who just needs to rely on his jumper. That that's, that's something I feel like people think, well, he's just a great shooter. No, he's a great uh, three point shooter. He's a great mid range shooter. He also gets to the line very well when he feels like he needs to, he, and his driving also opened up, opens up his offense. Andrew Wiggins, he shot four for nine for three, but there was a lot of times Curry passing the ball yesterday where he could have made even more points, and maybe Curry has a double-double. I mean, it's just – I'm so with – because of his strength, he can, he can go to the basket in a straight line. He probably gets a shot off. Maybe Time Lord blocks him a couple times. But I think if you're an offensive player and you get to the basket and someone blocks you, you're not that mad. You're, yeah. You're not- and Steph, the last thing before we move on to the other Warriors because we're about to spend – 16 plus minutes talking about Steph, which is okay, I guess, right now. But um, the amount, just like the variety of ways he can finish in the paint has also been very noticeable. I don't know. I think it was game four 
where he snaked around a defender on the right wing, then hit a runner from the right elbow. And if you've ever played organized basketball, the right elbow is not very close to the basket. Like that is not an easy shot that Steph made look extremely, extremely easy. And he had a few layups last night that were very crafty. And I was like, "Mm." like he is, he is added to his game and this is cool. Um, All right. I want to. I honestly, unless you feel super strongly about this, do you have a definitive opinion on where Steph ranks? I'm. I'm not a big like. See, I don't like this. Like, I have. Ah, thank God. Okay, good. I'm, I'm not a big ranker. <laughs> One because it's hard to compare Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell with everyone else because, like, yeah, that's true. Will average fifty minutes a game in a season. Like, how do you compare yeah. who does that? I, I like. I one. The one thing I will say is that I felt this even before the series and before Steph won his fourth ring. Let's stop this, like, Kevin Durant's better than Steph Curry shit. It's very dumb. Mm. KD's obviously a better scorer in my – well, KD's a better scorer. I wouldn't say obviously. But Steph's a better leader. He's more aware. He's also easier to play with. He also attracts more defensive attention. Now, LeBron, KD, they always get difficult defenses thrown at them. But literally, the Celtics were boxing one-ing Steph Curry from half court. You look at yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. Look at Marcus Smart's defensive possessions. He's breathing on Steph Curry for yeah. most of them. Yeah, but like, um. Oh yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to transition, but keep going. Uh, but I mean, I would say like, I'm just not big into it because it's like, like I'm just not a big rank person. Like LeBron, to me, the top six or seven players are probably like LeBron, no order. LeBron, Jordan, Magic, Kareem, Duncan, Kobe, um. I'm probably missing someone who's also bird and, and and bird, but like, it's just like, how do you decipher them? It's, it's difficult to me. Like, how do you add Will Chamberlain in it? Bill Russell, Bill Russell won 11 titles. Like, how do you, how do you compare that? How do you compare Shaq? Now? I mean, you could make some debates about like Steph versus Shaq and the impact and stuff like that, but I don't want to make those debates yet because I really do think the Warriors have at least another championship in them. So I'm not, I'm not really ready to start talking about Steph's legacy. I'll, I'll, all time because of how much more I think he, he can give. Shout out to Bob Myers for making me feel that because of how good the roster is right now and for the long term. Yeah, no doubt. And quickly regarding the Kevin Durant discourse, I mean, when you talk about the two finals that he won in 17-18 with Golden State, people are like, oh, he got carried by a good Warriors team. Well, you want to know who made the Warriors a really good team? Kevin Durant. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so I have to say about that. Um, let's talk about Andrew Wiggins. If there was a defensive player of the finals award, it probably goes. The only yeah. other candidate is Draymond Green, which I wouldn't be mad if he won that hypothetical award either. But Andrew Wiggins had Jason Tatum in absolute hell, and I love watching it. I was talking to Will the other day, and it was I was like, "This is like watching my child, like finally, like grow up." and finally, like, succeed at the highest level. Like, Andrew Wiggins was Golden State second. Yeah, the series. Totally. And watching Wiggins, I was thinking to myself, like, how many organizations can unlock players like Golden State can? And I was thinking, looking across the NBA, and I was like, hmm, definitely not Sacramento. Sorry, I just had to throw that one in there. Um, <laughs> Taking shots already. It's like Miami – and that's kind of it for basketball. Like, you think of in other sports, like, I guess any Tom Brady team. Um, I, I really don't think there's any in baseball. 
And then in hockey, like maybe Tampa Bay. But what I'm saying is that Golden State has built such a pristine infrastructure. And that is thanks to Bob Myers, as Steve Kerr pointed out during the trophy presentation, to like where everyone who goes there is immediately going to have the best of them brought out. And it's going to look the organization where the player was previously, if they were, look like an inferior organization, as Minnesota does with this whole Andrew Wiggins thing. I mean, there's other examples. Look at Gary Payton, like been on like 12 teams in five seasons. He finally finds a home and a role with Golden State. And like also with Payton, I feel like he's a – sorry, we're going off track here. One, set, one moment. I feel like he is like the best representation of how like the Warriors so greatly acclimate guys in their offense. Like you see almost every time he catches the ball on the perimeter and he's open, now granted a great shooter in the first place, but he deliberately waits and waits because he knows either Steph or Clay is coming to get the ball. And he did it again last night. It's like those guys. It's like Kaminga. Like I think if he goes and really anywhere else, he's set up to not hit his ceiling. But yeah. now that he's with the Warriors, I think he is really set up to hit his ceiling. And this is what happened with Andrew Wiggins, who was labeled as a bust. And now we're watching him in a much better environment, a much better organization. And the product has been very enjoyable to watch. Absolutely. I was always kind of, like, I, I was a fan of Andrew Wiggins. I wasn't Chris Broussard obsessed with Andrew Wiggins, but I, I, I've loved Wiggins' game. You know, what do you want in this, in, this, in this NBA now? You want players who can defend, who are long and lengthy, and can stretch space the floor. Andrew Wiggins does all three of those things. He also is a true competitor. You know that you're a good basketball player and that you have a good mindset when Jimmy Butler likes you. Jimmy Butler absolutely shit on the Timberwolves, but the one person that he liked and the one person that Tom Thibodeau liked was Andrew Wiggins. So that says a lot about his character, not just about now, but also about before he was on Golden State. And they truly did enable him. He was their fourth best player coming in. But for this series, on a game-to-game basis, he was their second best player, and they don't win the series without him. If you just replace him with Harrison Barnes, I don't, I don't know. Like, just because of how well he defended Tatum. And that also brings me into the dumbass slander of Jason Tatum right now. I don't like Boston, but the the slander of Jason Tatum being like, oh, he's not clutch or anything like that. He made the finals at 24 in his fifth year. Not that many people have done that. His stats for his first finals are similar to LeBron's first final stats. So let's stop this, like, chastising young players for getting to the finals when there should be no expectation and you're going up against the dynasty. But anyways, I digress. Andrew Wiggins was just spectacular. I always see rumblings. I see people say, like, you know, the Warriors should trade Wiggins this offseason to give Kuminga that role. You don't because, one, Wiggins is a veteran. Two, his character is considered unmatched. And three, from the start of the year, Andrew Wiggins was making sacrifices. If you remember, in September, October, there was two important players who who were not vaccinated at the time, Andrew Wiggins and Kyrie Irving. Andrew Wiggins was a little reluctant to take the vaccine. But he knew it was the best thing to do for the team for his availability. What did he do? He got vaccinated to help the team. And obviously, if he was only playing half the games this year, they're not going to be the team they are. And he's also not going to be an all-star to show everyone how good he is. So he's able to make that sacrifice. And I love how the Warriors came in. And I was reading this a lot today, and I've seen this a lot. The Warriors traded for Wiggins not to be a trade piece, but to be that fourth player, that, that wing that they really needed after Kevin Durant left. And he was exactly that. So, again, once again, shout out Joe Lakeup. Shout out Bob Myers for trusting Andrew Wiggins and giving him that opportunity. 
shout out the Timberwolves for basically handing over the Warriors' whole roster when it comes down to Steph Curry, taking two point guards in front of him, and then not doing the Clay Thompson, Kevin Love trade, and now Andrew Wiggins, and also giving them Kuminga in that trade as well, even though the D'Angelo Russell acquisition was not bad. Anyways, I digress. But I just, I thought his defense was spectacular, and he's also someone who can score for multiple levels. Now, he can't do it on a consistent basis, but he can get that mid-range shot. He can shoot the ball very well, and he also can drive to the basket when he's feeling aggressive. One of the best things the NBA did all year was make sure that dunk that he had on Luka in game three was not an offensive foul. Mm. Yes, I completely agree. That was electric. And I think (laughs) it's one of those unwritten rules. Like, if you get posterized, you're not getting a charge. Like, I feel like that should be a thing, you know? Um, Draymond, very efficient Draymond game. Hit a few big shots. Great defensively once again. Um, My biggest thing with Draymond coming out of the series is that he lost himself. Yeah. He was not the same, same Draymond early in the series and his own mother pointed it out (laughs) and then he found himself again like early on you think there's no cutting there's no getting in the paint there's no great passing he is being passive on offense like all the stuff that had made Draymond valuable on the offensive end was non-existent and then towards the end of the series there's cutting there's passing there's taking shots when needed there's getting into the paint and being a threat and being that lethal short roll guy that has propelled that has been part of propelling Golden State's offense to the heights it has reached. So yeah, I love seeing that improvement from the veteran. And uh, to add to it, like Draymond's performance last night was like 2016 Draymond 73 and nine Warriors run, where you say, "Is this maybe the best power forward in basketball?" To a type performance, his awareness on offense, his his defense. I thought the most important part in that game was when Boston was making that run and they cut it down to nine points. And Draymond just made sure that the Celtics would not get any closer. His awareness on defense, he, he kept the, sh- the ship together. Steve Kerr, in my opinion, was very smart for leaving Steph out to start the fourth quarter, especially last night, because it, it didn't made the team not panic. Because if you put Steph in at that time, that would have made the team panic um, because Steph doesn't usually go in to start the fourth. And Draymond kept the ship together. When I saw Draymond was out there as someone who really wanted the Warriors to win the series, I was confident because I knew he would he would he would handle everything, and he he did. He executed. He made sure people were getting their open shots, and he's also a player. And I think people sometimes get this mixed up. Some players do better when they're not talking trash. Some players do better when they are talking trash. This podcast shit did not impact Draymond. One, it's absolutely fascinating as a consumer. I've watched like I think all of his podcasts except for like one through the entirety of the finals is his episodes after the game. And they're absolutely just so nice to hear, hear his insight. So I think we also have to recognize that as well, that, you know, players succeed in different ways. We all watched the last dance. We saw what Dennis Rodman did before games. We, we know Michael Jordan went out clubbing a lot of the time. And Michael Jordan was obviously a tremendous basketball player. Players differ on what they need to do to prepare themselves. And Draymond's is clearly speaking his mind. It doesn't impact his play. And some players were doing hard drugs in exactly. the 70s, yeah. and Draymond's just talking. And he Everybody, watches, please watches calm down. Film. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I did not like that negative discourse surrounding him. Uh, Clay, I, like, I don't care. I mean, I, they won, so I don't care as much that he shot five of 20, and some of the threes he took were absolutely infuriating. And that yeah. if anybody but Clay Thompson had shot that, I would have benched him immediately. Um, but I mean, just imagine. Just think of something you love to do, activity or a hobby. 
Now imagine not doing it for over 900 days. That would stink, yeah. right? So I don't know. I just think the celebration of Clay has been properly has been properly done totally. throughout his entire season. Totally, and I think that he'll be even better next year. A lot of people in the media, especially after his game two performance, even though the Warriors won, were trying to be like, oh, Clay's washed. You should trade him, replace him with Poole. Like, let's calm the fuck down. One, his numbers for this year's postseason were better than his numbers the first year with with uh, with Kevin Durant. Two, his numbers overall are very similar to what they are for his career. So I think that, you know, you give him more time, you give him his legs and – he was ready for the playoffs, and that's what they needed. He had multiple big games. He had a couple in the Denver series. He had a couple in the Memphis series. He had a great game five versus Dallas, and, you know, versus the death, best defense in the NBA, the defense that kept a lot of wings throughout this playoffs um, intact. Klay Thompson has a little bit of a struggle because his legs aren't fully back, even though they're close to being fully back, is okay. Absolutely. Um, Looney? Was great again. Uh, oh, yeah. It was clear when he was. It, it was clear when he was on the floor that Golden State just had a way easier time hanging with Boston inside. Yeah. Like those, the seven and a half rebounds that he averaged this series. Those were those felt like loud rebounds, totally like impactful rebounds that extended Boston's possession. They were killing Boston on the offensive glass early on. Boston got a few at the end, so it doesn't. The gap doesn't look nearly as wide, but those were extremely important rebounds. And you um, could feel. Sorry, I want to say one more thing. Yeah, you yeah. Could feel it when he had foul trouble in games five and six. You could yes, feel it. Absolutely. And when Robert Williams was in there with no Looney, he, yeah. he was he was feasting. Totally. Um, we also have to commend Steve Kerr. Yeah. For the job he did throughout the series, benching Draymond, correctly regulating the pool minutes. Yeah. Like some coaches, I feel like if they were desperate for offense, like the Warriors at points in the series were stagnant, they would have played pool for way too long, and. Steve Kerr did not do that. Like Jordan yeah. Poole, I'm trying to think of like something that's good in short term, but then if you if you experience it too long, like for like okay, we both just went to beach week. Okay. We both experienced beach week. We both had a week at the beach. That was a correct amount of time. Yeah. To be at the beach. Like if it was another week longer, I don't think we could have done that. Totally. I, I, I could not have. Steve Kerr did a good job of not extending Jordan Poole's minutes to the point where it was really affecting the team because I know some coaches would have done that. Um, another thing, giving Steph ample rest. That was important. Um, I feel like Steve Kerr has not mentioned the class of guys like Pop and Spolstra. And I understand. Actually, no, I don't really understand why. He's as decorated, if not more decorated, than out of those coaches. I mean, Pop obviously has the advantage and wins. Um, Spo is Spo. Um, but I feel like Steve Kerr is in that class. Yeah. And this finals further proved it. And also, something that's bizarre, batshit crazy. I wish I was more animated. but Just keep going. Keep going. Anyways, Come on. I, Come on. I, We're I, good. I, the ADD kicked in. Anyways, um, this, this has to be mentioned. The Warriors' big three – Barely play like nine minutes together in the regular season. You throw in Steph off the bench, game one versus Denver. They they figure it out. Like that is insane to me. Also, the message that you have to keep to your team that you know we can still do this, even though your big three has not played it as cohesively and had real minutes together, is is very impressive. You know you had to find a way to replace Gary Payton when he was out. 
um, after game two versus Memphis in the second round, and then he came back. And you had to adjust him there also to put Otto Porter in to the starting lineup from games four through six. A lot of things. And what I love about Steve Kerr, he will stick to his principles, but he will also adapt. He stuck to his principles by making Steph rest for the start of the fourth quarter yesterday, and it clearly paid off. But he will also adapt if he needs to, like by starting Otto Porter or by benching Draymond in game four. So that's what I love about him. He's not rigid. And that's why this team continues to be so successful. They do what they need to. They adjust, they adapt, and they don't, they don't over, overreact. They don't panic. Yeah, no, they always improvise. They always adapt. They always overcome. Um, but closing out the Warriors, I think they're the only champion in recent memory where they also have a slew of young guys and lottery picks that weren't even contributors yeah. to this team that they can look forward to developing, a.k.a. Moody, Kamiga, and Wiseman. Which, I mean, we've seen a lot of teams, I feel like, where young guys lead the way to at least an NBA Finals appearance. But I think very rarely, at the very least, we see a team with so much young talent that won the Finals, but like that young talent didn't even contribute. And that's something they can look forward to, which I think is really interesting. I think, can I say one thing about that? Yeah. I think think it's going to be totally fascinating. So my, my analysis to this is, I think in about two years, you'll see Clay Thompson become Manu Ginobili and Poole will, Poole will become the starter. And I think Wiseman will start starting as soon as next year. But my question is, like, what happens with Kuminga? Because they're not trading Kuminga. One, he has nowhere to go. Like, he has no leverage. And two, he's such an athlete and has the potential to be such a great scorer, like Kawhi Leonard type, just like how he plays to me at least, that, you know, you're not getting rid of him. So I'm really fascinated to see what they do. And what I think they'll do is next year, they just won't re-sign Bielitsa and won't re-sign Otto Porter. And some of the young guys will start to take those minutes. But it's going to be really fascinating because Steph's not going anywhere. Draymond's not going anywhere. Clay's not going anywhere. Maybe he goes to the bench in a couple of years. But what if Clay's absolutely spectacular this year? Like, what happens? And Poole's signing that extension and Wiggins not going anywhere. So we will see. And, yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, they can be back here next year. Yeah, possibly the year after that. I mean, even though you look at the Western Conference, it's still going to be very tough. Like Memphis is going to be a year older. Dallas might be better. Uh, The Clippers are back, probably. Uh, Denver is going for it. Uh, I mean, even like Minnesota will probably be solid still. But Golden State, like you think of Phoenix. What happens with DeAndre Aiden? We don't know. Um, But like Golden State is still at the top of the West, in my personal opinion, even though all of these teams are probably going to be better. And to me, they stole a championship. They had no business winning this championship going into the season because Clay was not healthy. You know, everyone always says with torn ACLs, it's not the year that you come back, it's the year after. It didn't, and, and torn ACLs and torn Achilles. They won it the year that he was back. Like, to me at least, Steph is still going to be in his prime next year. Draymond will still be Draymond. Clay's only going to get better to me, so... They, they kind of stole a championship that they had no business winning in my eyes. Yeah, they were like a sexy preseason pick. Exactly. Like, I, I picked them to make the finals of, in the preseason. I yeah. picked Brooklyn to beat them in the finals, and that turned out very well. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, man. It's just just appreciating. Yeah. I'm just appreciating. Um, all right, let's take a break and talk about the Boston Celtics. All right, the Boston Celtics. We have to start 
with Jason Tatum because we are legally obligated. Two second half points, one of eight, nowhere to be found. Um, looked passive for most of the game. And the most interesting thing was I felt that. I myself have had plenty of basketball games where I have played nervous and I have not wanted the basketball. Basically like the anti-DAWG dog. Like this was a big series, first of all, for like all the people that base players off of if they got that dog in them. Yeah. This is a big this is a big series for them. Yeah. Jason Tatum looked just like that. Um Holden, did you see a similar thing? Um, I did see it and shout out to Tatum for at least knowing that it's part of him. Like he's aware that sometimes he doesn't have that mentality and in a way he kind of tried to show tries to show people that he's trying to have it when he shows everyone that he texted Kobe and then he does that same shrug pose when he's in the same uh, practice stuff as, as Kobe and he wears the, wears the thing around his, uh, his arm, the 24. So I think he knows that about himself, but also Andrew Wiggins, he shut Luca down to an extent. No one can actually shut Luca down, but he definitely made Luca's life more difficult. We have to also recognize that like this wasn't like if Jalen Brown had Andrew Wiggins on him, Jalen Brown would probably be doing worse than Tatum did. I think that Tatum also has some awareness about that on the court as well. That's why I thought his game one was actually really good because he had 13 assists the most in his career and he knew he didn't have it going. So, you know, what he did, he tried to get other people involved. If I'm Tatum, I have a lot of billboard stuff, a lot of film to look at. And also I have learned a lesson, which is that you can't talk shit and be dramatic the way you were without, you know, looking like, like crazy. If you, if you fuck up, like the amount of memes I've seen on TikTok about, about him texting Kobe and like you know, Deuce Tatum and Jason Tatum and all this stuff like that. Like, I don't know. It's just, he didn't, he didn't really act like in a way that was kind of confident, if that makes sense. Also off the court as well. It felt too kind of forced or maybe, maybe I'm overanalyzing it. No, the confidence clearly wavered. I mean, we just saw him a few weeks ago, drop 46 in a game six on the road in Milwaukee. We saw yeah. him dish out 13 assists in his first finals game. Like, he has it in him. Totally. He does. He totally does. But, like, last night, there was one play in the second half where Tatum was in, like, the right corner-ish, and Draymond went to trap him, and Tatum just sort of, like, haplessly tried to pass out yeah, of him. Yeah, And Draymond tipped it for a turnover. Like, that is a pass you make when you're feeling passive. And something that else that stood out to me regarding Tatum was how the Warriors players, after the game had ended, were hugging him and talking to him. Like, I have no idea what they said, obviously, but it looked like they were basically like, come on, like, you can do this. Like, you can do this sometime in the future. Yeah. Like, you're, you are good enough, but it's just about executing and playing like it. And to add to it, one, this is what a dynasty does to you. They find your best player, and they find what you're best at, and they, they kind of mitigate it. That's what the Patriots did, and that, that's what the Warriors are doing. But also at the same time, Boston just looked like a better team when Tatum wasn't involved. When Boston was down 22 and they cut it to nine points, Tatum wasn't really why they were coming back. It was Al Horford playing well, and it was Jalen Brown playing well. It had nothing to do with Tatum. So I think that if I'm him, I'm going to just – mentally find a way to overcome this. And I don't think that his game, I, I do think that his game six performance versus Milwaukee is something that he can look at. And what mentally did, was he feeling before that game? Now, obviously there wasn't the pressure on him 
um, like there, there is in the finals because the finals are the finals and it's a different magnitude. But, you know, that game had a lot of pressure considering that they blew a 14-point lead in the fourth quarter in game, in game five. So I think there's a lot of material for him to reflect on. And, you know, this is just part of the growing pains. Jason Tatum, his rookie year, he gets to the conference finals. He's up 3-2. He loses to LeBron. Totally fine. Absolutely, totally fine. Two years later, he loses in the bubble to Miami. I'm still okay with that. Two years later, he gets to his first finals, and he beats that Miami team that beat him two years ago. And that Miami team was better this year than it was two years ago. So it's all a part of the growing pains. We look at all these young players. We love John Morant. He's only been to the second round. We, we love Devin Booker. He's in the same spot. But he also had Chris Paul and Aiton and Bridges and a lot of injury help in the Western Conference last year. So I, I think we just have to kind of calm down. If Tatum had won this title, even if he didn't play great, he, he would have been – like th- that would have been historic. LeBron, his first title, LeBron won it. He won at 27. Giannis won at 26. I believe he was 26. But Giannis is considered an all-timer. Steph was 27. So KD, KD was, was 28. So I think we also got to, you know – like recognize that he's a young player and that we shouldn't have expectations for him. When you play, Nick Wright said this, and I totally agree with it. When you play more games, you're more likely to have bad games. It's just logic. He was, he played a total of um, 24 playoff games. By the end of it, he's a little tired. He had two straight, two straight game sevens and he's playing them against the Warriors who were a dynasty. So that's what happens. Yeah, I think this was good for him. Like, he lived and he learned. And he still played, like, extremely well. Like, this was a very good playoffs for him. It's yeah. just that, like, I know this wasn't as catastrophic as, like, I was thinking of the worst game set, like, elimination game performances in, like, NBA history. Like, there are far worse ones than Jason Tatum had, even though his was objectively Chris Paul, awful. This year. Chris Paul this year. The entire Suns this year. Uh, exactly. LeBron, LeBron in 2011. Uh, Starks in 94 that we don't talk about. Uh, like Stephen Clay in Game 7, 2016, shot a combined 6 of 24 for 3. Like there have been plenty of really, really bad elimination game performances. And look, this one wasn't good either. No. Like two points in the second half. Like your best player cannot go one of eight in the second half of an elimination game in the finals. Like that can't happen. But at the same time, like, yeah, Tatum is 19. Or yeah. at least that's what everybody wants him to think. But um, in all seriousness, like, I, I think this experience was good for him. And yeah. although they – I think they could have gotten past LeBron in 2018. Um, they were competitive with Miami in 2020. Um, look, like, the Celtics are still a very young – like, at least Tatum and Brown. They're both under 25. Yeah. Uh, Smart still – 28, they still have guys like Pritchard and Neesmith and Grant Williams. Like, all these guys are fairly young. Yeah. Um, but anywho, uh, can we kill the Celtics a little bit more, please? I would yes. like to do that. Yes. Uh, tur- the turnovers. Yes. The, the I mean, turnovers yeah. were bad. And also, they had shitty defensive awareness. To, to kind of crap on Tatum, even though I was kind of giving him a pass, was that he had some bad fouls. Like, at the start of the second quarter, he fouled Draymond in the post. If you're a star, you got to know you can't do that. Like, you have to be smart with your fouls. Also, Marcus Smart getting three fouls to start the game. Like, that that wasn't good as well. Not very good awareness, and that's what led to the, the Warriors' 51-33 to 33 lead with 238 left and how the Warriors ended um, the first half on a 52-25 to 25 run. It's because mentally Boston wasn't, wasn't locked in, not making good decisions with the basketball, and not good decisions fouling-wise. Yeah, I mean, Tatum, like, the 100 turnovers in a postseason, only one in NBA history to do that. I mean, that's 
look, I mean, he played a lot of games, but damn, 100 turnovers and 20, 100 turnovers in 24 games is a lot. And Westbrook. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, even that. Like, look at the Celtics turnovers by game in the finals. First game, they had 12, they won. Second game, they had 18, they lost. Third game, they had 12, they won. Then four, five, and six, 15, 18, 22, all losses, which adds up to 16.1 turnovers per game. That would have ranked 31st in the league. Only Houston, like, had more per game, like, in the regular season. Yeah. 16.5. Like, Celtics fans, this is how us Giants fans have felt when Eli Manning and Daniel Jones turned the ball over. Now, obviously, turnovers have a larger impact in the game of football than they do in basketball. But it's the same idea of that it's frustrating, it's deflating, and it happens in all kinds of silly and stupid ways. Yeah. So, Celtics fans, welcome to our world, kind of. It's also the, the curse of the Jordan Poole crazy three. At the end of the first, Jordan Poole banged the three in. Like, when you know it's bad when Jordan Poole's making shots. As, a, as someone who really loved the Warriors, like I've said um, in the series – he just when he gets in, he makes me so nervous. And Steve Kerr feels the same way because his minutes went down as as, as the playoffs went on and they advanced in series. But when he makes a shot, whether it's a half quarter to end the third, whether it's a stupid bank shot three or something like that, it feels emotionally punishing for the other team just because of how electrifying he is with his confidence. And when when his shots fall, it really does hurt the other team mentally. Yeah, Golden State's threes in the first quarter were mind boggling. So yeah. first one was it was a clay three with his body facing the opposing bench. Yeah. Draymond hits a three. Curry hits one in the corner with his body facing the opposing basket. And then Poole, bank shot, step back three. Um, and then late in the game, Draymond hits another one. I was like, oh, this is an omen. Anywho. Yeah, um, yeah the Celtics turnovers. Is a, I, that's all I have to say about that. Um, the role players for Boston. You know how um, – if you've ever taken environmental science, there is a term called indicator species. And indicator species are based like if you're looking at an ecosystem, whether it be a jungle or a tundra or a savanna, whatever, an indicator species, it's, it indicates how that ecosystem is doing. So how does this relate to the Boston Celtics role players? When the Boston Celtics role players are involved, that probably means the Celtics are doing well. And when they are not that probably means they're not doing well. And that is exactly what has happened in games four, five, and six. Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, Derek White, nothing really. Yeah. Nothing really to it for either of them. In the first – in the I, I, I totally felt the same thing. In the first – and I, I, I found the stat and I did it myself. I didn't even need stat news. I did the math too. In the first half, the Boston reserves were an average of minus 22.3. They had three reserves, Peyton Pritchard, Grant Williams – and uh, Derek White, they they were absolutely horrible. And when Boston's at its best, it's one when Tatum's facilitating, and two it's when the role players are involved, making making their shots. And they had that without Horford, who is their best role player, I would say. Um, but overall, like they, they were they were not do- knocking down shots. If I'm Boston next year, I'm going to try to develop Aaron Neesmith even more because you know if he can become a three and D shooter, um, that would be big time for them, and also would add. Um, more spacing for them and give Tatum an opportunity to facilitate even more. I agree. Um, just closing out the Celtics. I mean, it's all the things that we've seen from them and losses this postseason. They look like individuals more than they do a team. Um, they were getting killed on the glass. There were poor box outs, as you said, poor defensive awareness. Uh, there was a lack of hustle. Uh, they looked a step behind. Um, I don't know. It's just, again, all the things that 
have caused Boston loss this postseason. I do think Boston can get back, though. Was, was this their best shot? There's an argument, yes. But you look at the East, is Philly going to be better? Is, I, know, I know for a fact that Miami's going to be back and Milwaukee's going to be back with Middleton. Like, I truly do believe the Bucks are in the finals. Middleton is hurt. I will say that. Um, but, like, I don't know if Philly's going to be good. What's Chicago going to do? I don't know what Brooklyn's going to do. I mean, you could throw Atlanta in there. They were in the conference finals less than two years ago. Um, dude, I mean, even though the East was a ringer this year, like, I don't know what Toronto's going to be next year. I just – there's a lot of question marks. Like, the only two teams – the only three teams, I guess, I could see really running it back are Boston, Miami, and Milwaukee. I mean, I know Philly's going to extend Harden for a short-term deal, but unless they get more around them, like Boston is better than Philly, and Boston's better than Chicago right now. I don't know what Chicago does with a guy like Booch. Like, I, I don't know what they do if they if Boston can get, or excuse me, if Chicago can get, like Gobert down low. If they make a trade with Utah to get Gobert, even if that means giving up a guy like I don't know Patrick Williams. I haven't done the trade machine on that. Patrick Williams and a couple of the young guys. Like that's all of a sudden. That's a really fun playoff team. Brooklyn, they had some reinforcements. I don't know if they run it back with the same team. I'm sure as hell not picking them. Um, but like, I, I just, well, I mean, they can't really run it back with the same team because Ben Simmons surely plays next year. That's true. You see, like, there's a lot of unknown in the Eastern Conference right now, and the only three sure things right now, I think, are Boston, Miami, Milwaukee. You see, I see it a little differently. I don't see Boston having an easy path next year. One, I'm almost sure Miami will be better. Whether that's getting Donovan Mitchell, which I don't think will happen because the Jazz are hosting the All-Star game next year. And if they're going to make a big trade, they're going to do it after this year for revenue purposes. And two, because Tyler Harrell gets more minutes and he's going to be healthier next year as at the end of this playoff run, he was very hobbled. You also have Milwaukee, who, like you were saying, is going to get Middleton back and probably would have – and I agree with you, and I picked this. I had the Dubs beating the Bucks in six games with Middleton obviously being assuming he was healthy. And he wasn't healthy, and that really stunk for them. I also like Brooklyn as well. I think that they're going to only get better next year. Surely Kevin Durant just doesn't let the Warriors just win a title without him um, and hurts his legacy and everything, and he doesn't have any response to it. And we also we also have to remember that they have some assets beyond Ben Simmons, who I don't think they would even trade. But, you know, they have Seth Curry and Joe Harris. Maybe one of a team wants one of them. They have two first-round picks next year. Maybe they do something with one of them. They also have that other Philadelphia pick they have. They have a couple pieces. They even have Cam Thomas. Maybe he gets even better. The one nice thing that the Nets had this year that was really a positive was that Cam Thomas was a good player. You also have De'Ron Sharp, who had a lot of a lot of moments when the Nets had um, COVID issues and when KD was hurt and Kyrie could only play half the games and James Harden wasn't trying and he had, he had COVID at one point too. So – I think that there are some some pieces Brooklyn has. But with, with Boston, what concerns me is if they don't get a facilitator, I don't see them getting better at a half-court offense. They Something that really hurt them this year and why they had a lot of turnovers and why Tatum did is because he was facilitated. But, you know, even if you if you got, like, the best person I can picture would be, like, a 2015 Jeff Teague. That would be really perfect for them. Or, like, a four like four years ago Mike Conley. But if, until they, they have that, I don't, I don't really like it because I don't – think Marcus Smart is a natural playmaker. I don't I don't think Jason Tatum is ready to be that that point forward that like LeBron James is or, or like Giannis is. And even the Bucks, they have Drew Holiday, who's a true point guard. Yeah, it's and that was exposed in the series, the Celtics totally. lack of a true point guard. Um closing this out, 
I don't think this finals will be like remembered as an all timer. Like I don't think it'll no. be remembered remembered like a, a 2016 or a 1998. But I don't think it's going to get completely glossed over. Like this was a Warriors team that again, like a sexy preseason finals pick, and this was a Celtics team Celtics team who I picked to. I think I picked them to like make the playing game prior to the season yeah. starting. Like picking them to finish like sixth was generous, probably. Um, we saw both teams light the world on fire from three at certain points in the series. We saw both teams play incredible defense. Um, and we saw a generation-defining player add to his collection of accolades, like he needed any more to validate his legacy, which I don't think he did. Thank you. So I would say it was a fun finals. I think it was really interesting that, like, this was a complete reversal. Like, after game three, I was saying to myself, the Warriors need to do more to win. Like, more things have to happen in order for Golden State to win. But Golden State just figured out Boston. Like, it didn't matter that they were the smaller team. At Like, by game six, it clearly looked like the Warriors were the smarter team. The yeah. Warriors were a step ahead. And the Warriors were proactive with everything that they did. And they capitalized off of Boston's mistakes. So, I think this was a fun finals I enjoyed myself as one who was neither a Celtics nor a Warriors fan. And um, I don't know. This was just a really fun way to cap off what has been a very, very eventful NBA season. And a lot of stuff happened. And um, the right team won, in my opinion. The right team won. I I agree. The right team won, especially after how much the Warriors had to go through these last couple of years and how sad it was in 2019 that Clay went down um, and and Kevin Durant went down. It it was just really saddening. And, Clay having to go in November of 2020 and he tore his Achilles. It's just, it's just so sad. And, you know, the determination of this Warriors team, the awareness from the front office to set themselves up to win now and to win later and the trust that the Warriors had, the war, the star players of the Warriors had in the front office and the coaching before the year started, the Warriors big three and Andre Iguodala, they wanted Avery Bradley instead of Gary Payton Jr. of the second for, that final 15th roster spot. But Bob Meyer said, no, we want Gary Payton. Now, obviously that paid off. Now, if you're in other situations, maybe LeBron says, I want Avery Bradley as that 15th man. By the way, he actually got that in real life. But LeBron wants, LeBron says, you know, I need that. I want this player to be the 15th man. Some teams just listen to him. The main reason why Westbrook is on the Lakers is because of LeBron. And so the Warriors front office and the relationship that they have with, with their star players and, and their veterans is very solid, and it's why they're so successful all the time. And even though Draymond Green and Steve Kerr butt heads, they trust each other and they believe in each other and they listen to each other. Yeah, it's like the Warriors are just um, they're a model franchise. Yeah, they're what you want your basketball team to be, and especially your superstar Stephen Curry. As you said at the beginning, putting we over me. Yeah, like how many superstars put we over me? There's not a lot, and um. I don't know, just watching this, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really, like, I'm speechless. Like, Steph is, he's so, he's so likable. He's everything you want in a superstar. And I'm very glad he got another trophy that clearly meant more to him than the first three. Yeah. At least basing off of what he was feeling yeah. when he won. So, that was nice to see. Um, I'm, I'm happy the Warriors won again. Right team one, in my opinion. Okay. Before we get out of here, I do want to talk draft because it is literally less than a week away. 
which I had no idea was the case until like like last week. So Holden, specifically regarding the Knicks, uh, who have you had your eye on? Who do you hope is there at eleven for the Knicks to take? So I'd love Benedict Matherin. I know sometimes there's questions with it with this shot, but I think they need a good guard. I would not be opposed to Shaden Sharp, but the thing with Shaden Sharp is he hasn't played in a long time organized basketball. I don't want Jeremy Sohan. I also don't. You don't want... you, whoa, 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 whoa! Let's time out. You don't want Jeremy Sohan. Yeah, because I think we need a ball handler. Okay. That's why. I love Jeremy Sohan, though. Um, I also am just a little concerned about Dyson Daniels with that lack of three-point shot. I want a point guard who's going to be able to shoot and play aware basketball. I, if, if, what if Dyson Daniels is like Alfred Payton? Like, that would stink. And I, I'm playing the pessimist Knicks fan, but at the same time, I just – I want a rock at point guard. You want someone you can lean on. Do you think Emmanuel quickly can be the Knicks starting point guard next season? He kind of gives me shooting guard vibes, to be honest. And we put R.J. Barrett, who just had his birthday, shout out R.J., um, at the three. But that point guard spot to me is is up for debate. And, I mean, oh, I, I don't know. I just, I just, I just want a guard who's going to shoot the ball well. So that's what I want. So, okay. Don't think Emmanuel quickly can be the next starting point guard next year. I, just because I don't think he can facilitate. I have to disagree with you there. I well, think, I'm sorry you I went to the can. one game where he was godly when it came to passing. Well, I game. hold on. I'm taking into account that the Wizards were not playing their starters and that it was very late in the season. I, I will take that into account. <laughs> but I think Emmanuel quickly does have it in him to be that guy. And I think he should get the opportunity to be that. Now, this doesn't this isn't me saying I want to be opposed to drafting a guy like Matherin, a guy like Johnny Davis. Um, a guy like, I mean, I would be, I want to be opposed to Dyson Daniels. I really, I do really like what Dyson Daniels brings to the table. And if he can get the three pointer up to, if he can be a third, like a Lee average three point shooter, like, I think that would be really good for the Knicks. And I don't yeah. think at 11, the Knicks are getting a superstar. I mean, no. the Knicks, they, they, having a superstar would be nice. But in this draft, unless you trade up into the top three, or maybe top four. I think Jaden Ivey has superstar potential. Yeah, I agree. And depending on where you land with Shaden Sharp, maybe him too. But unless you're in the top five, you're not getting a probable top 25. Yeah. Um, At I'm least with- from what I've seen with the, the, the lottery so far. Uh, I'm with you. And if someone did say to me, though, Dyson Daniels is going to shoot 36% for the next five years of his career, then I would absolutely say – um, like I'm fine with him. I'm just concerned about his three point shot, and he has been shooting well in all of the the, the pre draft stuff, which which I like to see. But I, I definitely don't want Johnny Davis. He's way too off score first mindset. I don't think we need that. Okay, okay, I understand that. How do you feel about um either the bigs, either Mark Williams or Jalen Durant? Durant. I love Jalen Durant. I want to see him in Portland. Um, unrelated, if they don't get Portland. Him. Okay, wait, why <laughs> Portland? Um, because he's a run dog jump center, and if they don't trade that pick to get Jeremy Grant, because everyone knows the Blazers want Jeremy Grant, it's the worst kept secret in the NBA. I think he'd be a nice fit with Dame and Simons. I would like him on the Knicks, not as my first like draft option, but I mean, considering like I don't want Mitchell leaving free agency, I want Mitchell Robinson back. I think especially yeah. if you want to run a pick and roll offense where he's catching lobs, like you want like, Mitchell Robinson is 
one of the top five options in the league for lob catching. Totally. Um, but if he leaves, that leaves the Knicks with Taj Gibson, who is a backup big. Leaves it with Nerlens Noel, who I feel like his like body is going to fall into pieces at some point. And look, I love Jericho Sims, but I think we could just use some more depth at the five. Now, uh, again, like I think Jericho Sims. Now, I'm not saying he's at the level of prime Dwight Howard, but the way he plays reminds yeah. me of a younger Dwight Howard. And I think if he continues to get reps, he can turn into a very formidable big man. And I understand the argument against taking Williams and or Duran. Um, the Knicks already, like all of the Knicks centers are not perimeter threats. They're not stretch bigs whatsoever. Um, they're basically the same kind of prototype as Mitchell Robinson, as Jericho Sims, super big, super long, can catch lobs, uh, pretty like just paint presences. But once you stray out of the paint, things get questionable. I just think in the situations where Mitch, like even though he has gotten a lot better at limiting his fouls over these past few seasons, like when he was a rookie, especially in his second year, like, it was like Jaron Jackson Jr. level, like, holy yeah, cow, this totally. guy cannot stop fouling. He's gotten better with that. But, like, when Mitch gets into foul trouble, I, it just feels like the burden on Taj Gibson. And I guess you could throw Jericho Sims in there. It just feels way too much. And the Knicks feel outmatched inside. I'm, I'm with you on that. And, you know, I'm thinking about that, that game in, I think it was November, where the Nets were playing the Knicks and Mitchell Robinson had a bad foul late um, to – basically give the Nets the win. Yes, it was James Johnson going up for a layup. I, I yeah. was talking about this on – I talked about it right after, and Mitchell's Robinson's hands were like this. They were horizontal when he's the longest, biggest and longest guy on the court. Just keep your hands up. Yeah. Anyway, no, that, yes, I do remember that fact. That, that, that was infuriating as a Knicks fan. Yes, I'm a Knicks fan, not a Warriors fan. Anyways, <laughs> um, but I think as the season went on and um, after the Knicks were having some positive basketball – in 2022, which sounds crazy, but the start of March, we, we were solid. Um, he, he was stepping up his game rebounding-wise and offensively. But if we don't keep him, I I am a little bit skeptical of how Jericho Sims moves. Now, just for some reason, just when I watch him, he, he just doesn't move as athletic. But I also don't even think of Jalen Duran as an option at our pick just because I, I think he just goes goes early. I, really? I you, don't, you don't think he's going to be there at eleven? No, I don't. Like if I if I was Portland and I'm not getting Grant and I don't think I can get Aiden, I take him. I ju- I love the run dunk jump center. Like Bam, like what Bam is is like, I love that type of center. Interesting. You can fit anywhere. Like what if James Wiseman's that for the Warriors? That's gonna be lethal because he has a three point shot sometimes. Yeah, and you were look you look at the Warriors death chart. It's like I was saying throughout the playoffs. It's so, if God forbid something happened to Looney, like the Warriors were screwed. Yeah, Thankfully, totally. he stayed healthy throughout the entire playoffs. But again, we saw with Looney off the floor, they really struggled. And if you get James Wiseman in there, just uh, it's not as it's not nearly as much of a problem area as it is with him on the bench. Absolutely. Um, but honestly, with the Knicks wrapping up this podcast, um, I don't know. There's like I, I haven't really keyed in on like one guy. I would absolutely like I would die have on the Knicks now if they trade it up for a guy like Jaden Ivey who like just some of the stuff he does in the half court on offense I know his defense needs work 
but just some of the stuff he does in the half court. Like he literally runs around like defenders that try and come up on screens. And like there were just some like dunks that he had where I didn't think he could dunk it, but then he dunked it. I was like, I I was woken up. Yeah. It felt like. And I do worry with guys like him though, that rely a lot on explosion and speed, how that can wear down over time. And that him and Shaden Sharp too, like are going to have to adapt their games as they get older. But right now, I think Jaden Ivey can be an electric, like just an electric scorer yeah. in the league. And yeah, are you done? Oh, no. I was just oh. saying, like, I think he could probably fit well with Detroit. I mean, you've seen a lot of guys being like, oh, I think Detroit would be a good fit for X prospect because Cade Cunningham is the GOAT facilitator <laughs> at his age. Um, but, like, I actually think that's kind of true. And I think anyone from Ivy to Shaden Sharp to even like Keegan Murray. Um, I think could succeed next to Kate Cunningham in that Detroit Pistons backcourt. Totally. And to add, to put this in a Knicks context, Jaden Ivey to me is so electric. And that was the, the word I was going to use um, electric that, you know, if we have an opportunity to get him, if we trade up, I'm definitely taking him and kind of throwing that this idea of needing a facilitator like out the window, just because of how good Ivy it is, is at making these big time plays. Like I, I see the John Moran in him, like when he plays, like, I mean, I don't know if he'll be Ja because it's hard to be Ja, but like I totally do see it in him. And if, if you have the ability to have that next to R.J. Barrett, who's already a great two-way player, and Emmanuel quickly, I'll take it. And, you know, maybe he develops more as a passer, Ivy does, even though he's, he's pretty solid already. You've got Quentin Grimes as well, who could be a future knockdown three-point shooter for the Knicks. Yeah, thank, uh, you're proving my point of like I was talking about on my pod a little bit ago how I'd be hesitant to trade for Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. If the Knicks were to be going after him, just because like the Knicks have this young core of like several guys that I think would be really impactful NBA players, and to mess with it right now, especially considering that the Knicks have not had a young core to work with in at the very least over a decade. Yeah, like they have not had a collection of guys like Quickly, Grimes, Toppin, Barrett, McBride, Sims. Like they just haven't had that, and I think next year should be focused on developing those guys plus whoever they draft. So that's where I'm at on the Knicks. Holden Sherman, appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun, and I'm happy justice has been served to Mr. (laughs) Wardell Stephen Curry. Yes, big time. Um, Again, this will be on both the Mecca Sports Podcast and the Mazda Sports Podcast feed. Holden Sherman, thanks again. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Appreciate it, Quentin. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode, and until next time, Miles of Sports, out.